For the past few weeks, we've studied the mo- a most unlikely source for the knowledge of the universe, the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah represents a completely different way of thinking about the universe and what Hashem, God Himself, is all about. Remember, there are two most important issues of the Kabbalah that the Kabbalah deals with is Ma'aseh Bereshit, creation, and Ma'aseh Merkava, the divine chariot or the divine throne, or in fact, the essence of God Himself. Kabbalah is most concerned about the central question, how could... (laughs) I'm not even going to try. We we started four times because people came uh, different times. But you're only about one minute late on the fourth time. We're not reacting. This is all new stuff. Kabbalah is a completely different way of thinking about the universe and of God Himself. Remember that two of the most important issues that Kabbalah deals with is creation, Ma'aseh Bereshit, and the divine throne of the divine chariot. The Kabbalah is dealing with the central question is how could the infinite, the all, create a finite universe? There's no room for finitude when you're dealing with the infinite. Now, as mentioned before, those of us who are raised on the Maimonidean terminology that one cannot describe in any which way Hashem Himself, no term is adequate, Hashem is beyond comprehension, beyond description, there's no term that one can use whatsoever. We're very struck by the attempt of Kabbalah to go beyond the rational categories of language and say that language can in fact convey something sensible about Borei Olam. Therefore, those who are Maimonidean are not sympathetic to the Kabbalists. On the other hand, one has to respect the attempt at the, at the Mekubali with the Kabbalists to grasp the ungraspable even though we may say that they may fall short ultimately, still in all their effort, their attempt at grasping Borei Olam in all of their metaphorical description and their little description or whatever they actually are producing is respectable. There's an interesting Kabbalistic world called Shi'ur Koma. Shi'ur Koma literally means the measurements of he who stands of Hashem himself. Eighth century work. Ramam is not very happy with this work that tries to measure the physical dimensions of Borei Olam. But it's an extension of the Kabbalistic approach that these sefirot are the inner life of God Himself. Chokhmah, Bina, male, female, Shekhinah, Keter, Malchut, all of that defines what God is all about. The Ramah would say one cannot define what God is all about. It's, in a, it's inappropriate even to attempt to define what God is all about. But nevertheless, one perhaps should measure this question by the yardstick as to whether or not a person comes closer to the infinite, to the source of all that is, by virtue of this endeavor, which is called Kabbalah. I think one can very easily argue that yes, the Kubalim have achieved an intimacy, a closest to Borei Olam, that the rationalists cannot do so. That even though the, the Kubalim may not really have captured the truest essence of Borei Olam, which I would believe is impossible to capture, Still in all, what can we say? We could say they've come closer. What about if the object of the search and the way they're doing it and what they achieve is false? Still in all, they've come closer to their false goal than many others come to the true goal but which is incapable of being achieved or attained. Is the pursuit itself Though maybe on the wrong pathway, may bring one in a be- in a more close relationship to Borei Olam, as the Mukubalim are doing. The pursuit itself is perhaps better than the journey of the rationalists of the Maimonideans that doesn't really even get off the ground.
Because there's no terms I could use. I can't get any place. So the journey may be to the wrong direction, but at least you're going someplace. With the Rambam, and it's hard for me to be critical of this endeavor, and it's really not critical at all, because I, by bottom line, is I see the Maimonidean approach, and even though it doesn't get off the ground, it's still, I think, the truest approach. I don't believe that one can ever comprehend or grasp Borei Olam. And I'm happy with the Rambam's approach. I can live a life very happy with the Rambam's approach, but also, I like the taste of the forbidden fruit. There are times when it's enlightening and it's spiritually energizing to in fact engage in that forbidden fruit in the Kabbalistic journey, even though it helps to go nowhere with it. So how did Rambam uh, connect with God? Intellectually. Everything through the mind? You get to the past through intellectual... So yeah. does he say that the mind is infinite? Ultimately, the ultimately, yes, because the mind is simply an extension of Borei Olam. Ultimately, yes. What preserves after this life for the Rambam? Only the mind. It's the mind that preserves. Yes, the Rambam was, of course, criticized for that. Nobody was, not everybody's happy with that so, formulation. So, but yes, it's a good so formulation. For the Rambam, when one thinks, one is engaging in a divine pursuit. Yeah. Remember, as a backdrop to the Rambam. Aristotle's definition of God. Aristotle is quoted in Moreno Bochim on every third or fourth page. Equal, possibly equal, if not more, than, as Moshe is quoted. Aristotle's definition of God is, Aristotle engages, for Aristotle, the human being is distinctive in what activity? <coughs> His thinking. What differentiates the man from the animal? Man's mind. So God must stand, must be engaged in that most noble pursuit. The most noble pursuit is the power of thought or the pursuit of thinking. What is God thinking about? The most noble end. What's the most noble end to think about for Aristotle? God himself. So God is thought thinking itself. Thought self-reflecting on itself. Pure thought. Call thought energy if you choose that term. I'm not happy with that term because energy is something even physical. But since it's beyond the realm of energy, thought, thinking itself, is Aristotle's definition of God. Of course, no contact with the human beings, no contact with the sublunar sphere. Yes, all that's something separate, separate issue. Ram seems to think that Aristotle got it right. That's what God's all about. Although the Ram never said that specifically, and I will back away from that statement, that even though the Ram will respect Aristotle's endeavor and Ramon will say that Aristotle had everything right from the lunar sphere below, but beyond the lunar sphere, beyond the lowest sphere of the, of the active intellect, the metaphysical realm, Aristotle didn't get it right, and we only get it right because of Nebuah, because of prophecy. That's another dimension or another stream that runs through the Rambam. These two streams of the Aristotelian stream, as well as the metaphysical beyond rational themes. So the Rambam does talk about that. The Ram does talk about emanations, and in this way does come close to a Kabbalistic approach. But ultimately, it's the mind that gets you to the highest reach, reaches, and then, once you know the philosophy beyond the mind, it's prophecy that carries you forward. That might be a more precise definition. What gets you into the palace, though, of God, really is the mind, is that what springs you forward. It's what you really want to engage in, to get to Borei Olam. But that's of critical significance. Have a wonderful trip. Tomorrow morning, not here? Have a wonderful trip. We'll miss you. So the Kabbalah, of course, as mentioned, is a 
wonderful engagement, although not all of us can deal with it, especially the Maimonideans among us. Nevertheless, it's interesting that our friend, Professor Matt, Dr. Danny Matt, says that it's Kabbalah that's going to give us knowledge of the universe. Surprisingly, the teachings of modern-day science and Kabbalah, very surprisingly, seems to seem, on the word seem, to have something in common. Yes, the Kabbalah, which stretches back 2,000 years, has something in common with modern-day science. Now, it's true that to one extent or other, to get these two disciplines to fit, there has to be some stretching, a bit of stretching. And we will analyze this critically, as we always have done in the past, to see whether he stretches too far too much. We would certainly assert, as he will as well, that what we see in front of us in analyzing these two disciplines is not simply a glove ready for wearing. It's not as if the scientific realm is going to fit very easily to the Kabbalistic or vice versa. The glove does not fit perfectly well. On the other hand, the fact that there is some point of contact at all is of interest. In dealing with this topic of cosmology, Bereshit, Ma'aseh Bereshit, and dealing with how modern science approaches this, and dealing with this with the insights of Kabbalah, it's an interesting pursuit. You may not be convinced at the end, or you may be convinced at the end. The interesting point over here is that if you feel ultimately spiritualized by virtue of this engagement, I would say it's a worthwhile activity. And to me it is. For me it is. Certainly it is. The ultimate conclusion that really these two disciplines, though they speak different languages and really on first glance have very little in common, still in all, the attempt at looking at both disciplines I think is worthwhile. And you'll see in a few moments how Matt really in fact makes the same disclaimer. I want to say the same thing. He's not going to try to isogize, meaning read in to Kabbalah scientific theory. That, if you recall last week, was, which was what Eli was very upset about. He couldn't deal with this. He could read anything into anything. So I said to him, yeah, that's obviously true. We know you can read anything into anything. If you have enough of the hermeneutical te- techniques, you don't always make one thing mean another thing. That's no problem. But that's not what we're doing over here. He makes that point. We make that point. We're not that simplistic. We're not going to try to bend and shape science to fit Kabbalah or vice versa. Simply to point out points of contact and see how one engages in both. And at the end of the day, you could decide whether or not this was a worthwhile involvement. Now let's look at Daniel Matt. Daniel Matt is a legitimate PhD. He's a PhD in in Kabbalistic studies, which is of course interesting. And he tries to lay the issues that are of concern to us from both perspectives, scientific and the Kabbalistic, in front of us. We want to try to analyze what he says to us scientifically and religiously. He begins on page 11 of your work, how these two disciplines differ. Physicists and theologians often contend that religion and science are two separate realms, each valid within its own domain, operating under its own set of rules. True. The purpose of science is to explore nature, while religion's purpose is to foster spirituality and ethics. True. But the question, 
how did the world come to be, his argument would be, is vital to both disciplines. Because it is such fundamental, it is such a fundamental human question, one that has been pondered since human consciousness evolved to a point where it could reflect on itself and the cosmos. Let's think about this issue for a moment. Two disciplines stand in front of you. One is called science and one is called religion. Yes, it's often tragic when science attacks religion or when religion attacks science, both of which has happened throughout human history. Why is it tragic? Because it misleads people. In fact, one can very easily argue that they're both separate disciplines, very easily and very simply, and the twain shall not necessarily meet. Science tells you how the world operates. Religion tells you why the world operates. What your function in this world is all about. Religion should not attempt to explain the third law of, nuclear dy- dy- of thermonuclear dynamics and science should not tell me about ethics. And indeed it is so that if you read a scientist's reading, writings, read Einstein on religion, or as we saw with Greenstein last year, his religion is simplistic, foolish even. Einstein you wouldn't call foolish. Greenberg you do call foolish, that we saw last, last year, but it's not very profound thinking. It's not surprising. The part of the mind that deals with science is not the same part of the mind that deals with religion. It's two different parts of the mind. I would say it's the mind and the heart. Agreed. That's what I would say. Okay, agreed. But the heart is a physical organ that translates its... The, the mind, the mind translates... I didn't translates, only mean it as a physical organ. I'm sorry? I didn't only mean it as a physical organ. Okay, now, good. Emotionally, but is, the, is it the heart that feels emotions or is it the part of the brain that interprets the heart's feelings emo- intellectually? Probably the latter. So it is, the, yeah, the, the latter to Shemayim, the latter that Yaakov used to get to see that. That's rabbinic humor, if you didn't mind it. I don't charge for rabbinic humor, by the way. Do we want to compare and contrast religion and science? We want to, th- we want to take very slow, slow steps. And we are going to get to that point. There's a philosophy of religion, there's a philosophy of science. We want to see where each other gets. Because we just introduced science as figuring how the world works and religion... That's why, or giving up a, a pathway in life. One descriptive, one prescriptive. Good. But do we want to... We're going to raise that as a question. Let's go slowly. Give me a few minutes. We'll go slowly to see how to proceed in this question. So now, before we read further, he does, in fact, set up these two poles. And with the way he sets it up, there's no need, really, for science to critique religion because uh, it comes from a different angle, different, different perspective. You're dealing with empirically verifiable issues as a scientist. We are dealing with that which is not empirically verifiable. And really, really, we should live harmoniously with each other. No need for me to attack what you're doing, no need for you to attack what I'm doing, but of course that has been the history of the relationship. Let's say, from the dawn of the Enlightenment, Prior to that, it was not so. Aristotle, from Aristotle, all the way to St. Thomas Aquinas, the scientist and the philosopher and the theist all lived very well together. No, you don't hear any tax going on. Raman was the epitome of a scientist, a theologian, a philosopher, all rolled into one, as was St. Thomas Aquinas. No problem. But with the dawn of 
the enlightenment, when science took an independent pathway and Galileo saw things that the church was not comfortable with him having seen and they will put him in Hedem or excommunication, the war began. He backed down. He had to back down. Church had all the power. It was your head or your, or your science. He chose his head. He kept to keep it attached to his body. Fine, but as science developed, and of course, we in the crescendo with his attacks on Darwin at a certain point and evolution, and then so to the 20th century, the attacks have been going both ways. To this very day, you will hear attacks in the unsophisticated, illiterate Syrian community against science by rabbis who know nothing about science. It's embarrassing. Yes, you hear same from the Christian right. But the Christian right may know a little bit more than the rabbis that I'm referring to. And it's, it's sad because what do you know for us to attack? Why put a community or individuals on a pathway of nonsense when you don't know anything about the subject matter at all? Go to a rabbi who knows science, not discuss it. And there are multiples of rabbis with PhDs in various fields of science. It's easy to find in the phone book. There's a whole, there's a whole orthodox scientist organization. No problem. So discuss science with them. That lets you know of a rabbi who knows religion and knows science, then see where we want to go. But to assert illiterately that whatever they may assert about evolution or about the age of the universe or about cosmology is no 400 yeah, years ago. Right. And it's really a sad comment that people and rabbis still do that but that, again, when you're so illiterate you know, that you don't know that you're illiterate then you have a problem. Because those who know know that they don't know and therefore they can make statements about what they know and no makes sense what they don't know. But if you don't even know that you don't know then you're in the dark. You're a tov avohu. And that's really a sad comment. That this day and age, you still have that going on, as it was three, four hundred years ago, and up to a hundred years ago. Interestingly, the Pope, as we read in one of our articles, does not say that. The Pope says, no, there's nothing to fear from science. We can get along. And the greatest of our rabbis, of course, those who know, know that we can really very easily get along with the scientific realm. When they attack inappropriately, we know that they're attacking inappropriately. And if we, to know what we should, what is true, what's not true, we could get along without a problem. And we don't want to mislead individuals or worse, God forbid, lose people because they said, I know science. What you're saying is nonsense. And again, we've mentioned on other occasions, there are people who did get degrees in science. They say, I can't live in the Syrian community because the rabbis there say science is nonsense. That's nonsense to say that science is nonsense. So that's a sad comment because it leads to a neshama getting thrown by the wayside simply because of the illiteracy of the rabbi. Who doesn't even know, he doesn't know. Astounding. Go to Rabbi for a cycle to finish high school. What are you talking to? Who are you talking to? It's absurd. Okay, good, good. So that's good. But they sometimes overstep their bounds by attacking religion, stupidly, and that's illiteracy about religion as well. I'm not playing favorites over here. But the same happens on the other side of the coin that rabbis who are not educated in science will attack science. Both. Both. The issues of science, science itself, the heresy that's involved, not, the whole nine yards. I'm making broad generalized statements. So they're taking both. Is, I mean, I've heard both. I've heard both. And you're right. I'm, no issue. So now, 
So we understand that science and religion are two separate disciplines. And that's fine. Right? We could, we could live with that. We could live very easily our lives with the perception that science gives me some description of the universe and religion gives me a prescription of how to act, how to achieve spirituality. And the disciplines don't have to butt heads whatsoever. I've had many professors at university who take that approach. That's one approach. But we want to try to go beyond that. The one approach is fine and many will live happily with it. But we want to try to go beyond that. And as Danny Matt tells us over here, the question, how did the world come to be, is vital to both disciplines. Because it's such a fundamental human question. And you can raise a question on that question. Is it so that the question... How did the world come to be? Is it really vital to both disciplines? Does the theist necessarily care about the question, how did the world come to be? Now, let's think about that issue. Is it really of such superior significance? To the scientist, I can understand that. But does the theist need to know how was the world created? Right? What first comes to mind when you raise this question is the first Rashi and Parashat Bereshit. Right? A literate Jew should, all, should know. Literate, see, I say level two. There's different levels of literacy. Literacy level two, meaning a Jew wants to achieve level two of literacy, should know the first Rashi and Bereshit. Right? Why should you know that? Because that's the first Rashi. Rashi is the commentary most quoted in the history of our people. If that's the case, then we should know his first Rashi we should know. Right? Kumash over there, please. I'm not asking you to know it by heart. No, no, I want the Mikroge Lord. Thank you. I'm, I'm only going to refer to it for, in, for one or two seconds. I don't... Yeah. Yeah, I put it there for that reason. What's Rashi's issue? Rashi tells us over here, very interestingly, that you don't have to know about Ma'aseh Bereshit. Why not? Why is Rashi saying that Ma'aseh Bereshit, in fact, the whole entire book of Bereshit, and the first 12 chapters of Shemot are completely irrelevant to the quest of the Jew. Exactly. You're too far to the right. You've been trained too much on the other side of the tracks. Because we need mitzvot. Exactly. The, well, wait. Did Ashi, wait don't, I don't, don't put words in Rashi's mouth. Rashi's simply going to say because the essence of the Jew is Shemirat HaMitzvot. Do what's right prescriptionally. If you do what's right, you're in God's good graces. More than that, you don't need. Rashi says over here, quoting, Pasuk, Koach ma'asav hegid la'amor. The power of what he did, he told his nation. Right? He tells us over here that we don't really need that. I want to say, Lo hayat tarikh le'atchil, Torah didn't have to begin, at the Torah, Ela, which is the mitzvah the first commandment, which is what? Kurban Pesach. That's what you should have saw the Torah with. Forget all the Bereshit. Right? Shehit, excuse me, mitzvah rishonah, shnatzvu by Yisrael. Ki at ikara Torah ena ela le mitzvoteha. Ve'agam shnatzvu b'seh Bereshit gam ken ktsat mitzvot, t'mo midla gidan Hashem, ayah yechol et chutvan, v'hadish ar mitzvot. 
Begin with Bereshit. Is Rashi's question. Right? Rashi says to say, you don't need cosmology. What does it do for you? Does it really give you anything? Now, I would argue it gives me an awful lot. And she says, no, it doesn't really give you anything. You know what? It doesn't really give you anything? Because really, you cannot really understand anything about it. But I'm interpolating the words of the Ramban into Rashi. Let's finish with Rashi. So what's the point from Rashi's point of view? End of that pasuk. Interesting how Rashi grabbed onto this pasuk and used it to <coughs> interpret the reason for Bereshit. Koch ma'asav higid le'amor. End of the pasuk. Latet lahem nachalat goyim. God had told us His power, Koch Masaf, of creating, Gidle Amor, told His people, to give them the inheritance of the non-Jewish world. She continues and says that, very quickly, that if you Jews who are going to ultimately inherit the land of Israel are going to be challenged by the non-Jewish world and they're going to say that Listimatem, you're thieves and robbers for stealing the land. What are we going to answer? The whole world was created by God. Here it says it. And Hashem will give the land to whomever He wants. There are times to give it to you, times to give it to us. It's up to God to give it to And therefore, we're only fulfilling our divine mandate by inheriting this land. Ironically, this statement is so powerful in light of the Middle East today, parenthetically speaking, not to pursue that. But it's ironic that what is our claim to get Israel? Well, if that's our only claim, it's, it's pretty rough, because who believes that? that exactly. <laughs> so it's not a very good argument. But now, at least internally speaking, it's a good argument. Internally, not externally. Correct. So really, in fact, one could read this, uh, this first Rashi in light of the First Crusades. First Crusades was 1096. Rashi was writing his commentary before and during and after the first crusades took place. What are the first crusades about? The Christian attempt to wrest the, sorry? Right? To wrest the Holy Land from the infidels. Who are the infidels? The Muslims. So you have all this activity going on. Starting at 1060, 1070, you have the Templars, you have King Arthur, all of this going on. We're going to go there and of course Jewish communities were devastated on the way to practice Till they got to the till they got to the Holy Land. Well, that's true. Yes, whip them up, kill some Jews, and go forward. That was the Crusade. Now, if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew living in Europe at the time of the Crusades, what was your question? We don't get it. We are the Jews, and the land is ours. But who's fighting over it? The Christians and the Muslims. So, are we the Lahmajin of this discussion over here? How can we play no role whatsoever? Now, she has a good rabbi. Is doing what? As a good rabbi, she's telling internally, yeah, they have, and Hashem gives it to them, gives it to them, gives it to them. Eventually, what will happen, ultimately? Give it to us. So that's his first point over here. That you are robbers and thieves. You took the land over. We're going to tell the people. The land is God's. He created it. He brought it into existence. He gave it to whoever he decided to give it to. Right? With divine will. Hashem gave it to the Muslims. 
and with his divine will, Nitalai took it from them and gave it to whomever or to us eventually, Lionel. So now, one interesting insight over here is that Ashim may not be making any cosmological or philosophical statements, maybe simply making a political, social statement necessary for his time and place. Or one can do this with Ashi as in fact making a very profound cosmological statement, namely that we don't really need to know all of this for the main reasons that we don't really understand all of this even as it is. That Amban comes along and raises... So why, would he, so why, why is it started with that? No, he's saying that he do need to know. Wait, 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 one, two, three, yeah. Why would, according to Rashi, if that's how he says that it's not important, he might have it in the Torah, or why more important? Well, his stated answer is, to address the problem of the Muslim crusade Christian situation. He's giving his people the feeling that down the road it'll be ours. That's an appropriate statement for Rashi to make that in the shul. That's Okay. That's what gives us the... Or how about Gan Eden, how about Masayim Abu, how about all the other stuff over here? So Ramban raises that exact question. Ramban raises the question on Rashi. What do you mean? We need it for all these other reasons. We had done Ramban four or five years ago and it's something really worth studying again and again Ramban on this Rashi. Ramban is 6-7. Ramban is a little bit heavy. Good. But it does tell us and he tells us and he says, um, how could Rashi say this? The Eshmash all Bah, ask the question on Rashi. Kitzorach Gadolhu, there's a great need for it. Le'atila Torah Bashit Baralahim, Kiyushosh Amunah, it's the source of all faith. So the Ramban's position on this is, you need us to know about God. Now remember that Ramban was a primary Kabbalist. Right. Ramban was in Kubal, one of the first, the, the first to infuse his commentary with Kabbalistic thoughts and ideas. So that's good. So from Ramban's point of view, and again, we could look at the Rashi and say that she was a man who mastered Talmud, mastered Torah, wrote incredible commentaries on both, but wasn't interest, interested in the philosophical, cosmological questions. He was a, he was a Jew. And your primary function is a Jew to do mitzvot. So do mitzvot, that's his whole point over here. So one could look at Ashi as in that fashion, in the same way that Baalea Tosafot, from where Ashi as well was at home with, northern France, that's what they were involved in, doing mitzvot properly. There are many geographic locations that you could point to that have the same exact approach to Ashi. Borough Park, B'nai Barak, Muncie, all these questions. Do mitzvot the right way, that's the whole entire story. This is nice stories. It's nice, okay, you read it, but the philosophical component parts of this is not of issues to them. Interesting example. When I go through the Pirashat and our, our Tuesday night class which talks about Pirashat and Dirash and we analyze the Pirashat from a passionate point of view. What is of significance is not only what Rashi or any other commentary that we deal with says but also what it doesn't say. Meaning what? That if I were to give you the 22nd chapter of Bereshit, Akedat Yitzhak, and say, what do you think about this? God appears to Abraham, tells him to go forth, gives him a child of 100 years, and then goes and slit his throat. Now, most modern people would say, how does God do this? Slit his throat, kill a kid, paganism? So the pagans did. How does Abraham, Abraham to do this? The moral question involved, even though it doesn't happen at the end, the moral question involved 
where how could God cause this human being such anguish between the commandment and three days later and stays his hand? Heavy issue. I want you to think about that. Similarly, today's parasha. What moral, moral question is raised in today's parasha? Good, good. So you don't live that far away, I guess. You live on this side of the track. The modern person says, one second. And this is the question that was in my class this afternoon. How do we justify what we call collective punishment? One man sins, assuming that Shechem deserved death for the rape of Dina. Not too many would argue that. I buy it. They killed the whole entire city. There's a hundred families in the city. Villager in those days. hundred families. Seventy-five. Whatever it was. I could raise the question, is it appropriate to deceive an enemy in battle? We could agree that it's appropriate to deceive an enemy in battle. Put up a white flag, they get close, shoot them down dead. It's the enemy. Yeah, I can deceive them. Right? It's an interesting question. I'm not saying to afflict the enemy once I capture him. I believe in the Geneva Convention. But we're still in battle now. I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to steal your secrets. What I have to do to win the war. Okay, that's appropriate. But once I've already defeated the enemy to go and slaughter them, it's a difficult question. So we have over here this issue. He points out that Shimon Lee killed everybody. Most of us are not comfortable with collective punishment. Meaning, one kid cheats in the class. You all lose your reasons till the he comes forth. I fail all of you because he cheated. We've all been subject to that at one point or other in our academic careers. And if you're the innocent guy, you don't feel good about it. You don't want to be told that because of what they did, I am suffering. It's just fair enough. I'll give you the test again, another test. No, I don't want to spend another three hours studying for another test. Do we all agree with that? Is that obvious to everybody? But it's what happens. I would never do that. Why should they suffer for the sins of an individual? Something over here. So now, the Rambam on this issue raises the question and solves it his way. The Ramban on this issue raises the question and solves it his way. Both are stricken by the moral question. I mean, by the moral question as to why did they massacre the whole city? That she doesn't raise the question. She does not raise the question regarding Akadai Tak. She does not raise the question regarding this issue as well. Now, I have not studied Ashi systematically throughout the entire Torah to see whether Ashi is sensitive at all to these moral, modern questions. Not so modern, because the medievals did in fact raise them as well. So we see that. But nevertheless, Ashi never raised these issues. You have an eye for it. Why does Ashi not bother by this? And deception. Yes, she doesn't raise that either. The Midrash does. So it's not a micro. The Midrash says, hold on a second. It's an amazing issue where the Midrash says that Yaakov, this is very amazing. The Galut of going, atones for the sin that Yaakov did. God's intense anger on Yaakov because he, he did this deception of his father. Hashem backed away because he had Galut which atoned for that transgression. It's a Midrash, 2,000 years ago. Midrash was bothered by this question and solved it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Of course. I don't know that Rashi would ever have said ever. Agreed. Rashi chose not even to read to write that that that, that midrash in. He chose other midrashim. Doesn't choose this one. So it's an interesting issue. Again, this takes 
and needs a much greater analysis of Rashi as to what his issues are. In the same way, if you were to go to um, <coughs> certain places that we said geographically, they wouldn't raise the moral questions of a Hak, how could God do this? It doesn't enter into their, into their perspective. My Chris, I'm just saying that's the facts of the matter. So too, if you go to other areas, let's go to the Wayu communities, whether it's Teaneck, whether it's uh, University, wherever it may be, they're going to raise those questions. Read the Divrei Torah of the Wayu rabbis, read the Divrei Torah of the Borough Park or B'nai Brak rabbis. Different worlds apart. You ask different questions depending upon who you are and what bothers you in a text. So, they don't enter into the world that Daniel asks questions. Which question? question Science and religion? Not at all. Not at all. Another, the fundamental question, how did the world come to be? They yeah, that's not, not a question. But again, so therefore that's Rashi's approach. It's not, it's, not, it's not an issue for them. Whatever is, is. It's type of thinking. Yeah. Now, yeah. Do the mitzvot. And we should be aware that that is a prominent theme throughout Jewish history. Mitzvot are what counts. Speculation gets you no place. Where speculation gets you? Thinking, philosophizing is a very strong stream even earlier on in the Talmudic period. Don't do this cosmological thinking 2,000 years ago. Why does the world want to one midrash in Hagigah? Why is the world created with the bet of Bereshit? Because don't ask what's above, don't ask what's below, don't ask what preceded you. Go forward, do the mitzvot, and you're home free. Because thinking and speculation is dangerous. Sorry? It's more tangible. And I understand very clearly and very well that there are people who are attracted to that. There are people who love halachic dialectics. How to analyze the halacha legally. I saw him this morning to Myron, and he was telling me, he was a lawyer, a high-brow lawyer, and I was talking to him, it's fascinating how he loves the law. He was talking about the Supreme Court and Florida and that's the Constitution and this and that and how they function, how it operates. It's interesting that he loves the law in a way that a doctor loves the body. The doctor slices the body, he slices the law. It's when you have a field that you engage in 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, that's your field, it's your realm, it's your world. It's what you see in front of you, it's what you sleep and dream about. So people that love halakha the same way. Abbasalavechik is interesting in that he had the legal analytical mind and loved the law halakha to that degree, of course, but also so finely tuned was his mind that philosophy and speculation was equally of concern to him. And the Rambam as well. Right. Rambam as well. You don't often find those two. You find the people that are interested in halakha. You might find those interesting enough who are interested in Musad. Who are interested only in ethical development. There was a whole Musad movement at the end of the 18th, 19th century. A beautiful movement. That ethical perfection. We, Joey and I have discussed it before. Where the attempt was to break down the human being from his arrogance to make him into a... A mensch. That's the whole issue of life, making someone into, into a mensch, to a good human being. Now, interestingly enough, there are those out there who don't care about becoming a good human being, who don't care about menschlichkeit, doing what's right. There are those who only want to do what's right. That's their issue. However you understand why a Mossad personality. 
And it goes without saying, they're not interested in cosmological questions, they're not interested in secular, they're not interested in philosophical questions. They can't say, what are you doing all this for? Interesting, I once read an article on how the world, world perceives philosophy. Starting from the very beginning of time all the way till today, it's viewed with skepticism. You guys' heads are in the clouds. You end up gyrating intellectually, all kinds of thoughts. People are unhappy with philosophers. In well, fact, well, Socrates well, is killed because well, he's a philosopher. Which means like what Rob Soloveitchik said. That speculate with the world race. But it's exactly that's okay, that. good. Agreed. Right. That's the beauty of it. Absolutely, a thousand percent. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of his way of life. That he has both perfectly harmonious in balance. Fine. So now that she is of that mind where it seems to be cosmological speculation does not have any interest to him. Nor any of those ethical spiritual kinds of questions. Not an issue to him. He just has a straightforward pathway. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. To make a person into a mensch, one can argue that much of his commentary, I shouldn't use the word much, but some of it is Musad-oriented, here and there. He comes mainly to explain the Pshat and the Mikra, and he'll put in a little Musad here and there, not much, I shouldn't use the word much, and that's basically what it is. Others have very different thrusts in their commentaries. Ramban's thrust is speculative, is philosophical, is going to raise the question of why did Shimon and Levi kill the entire city? Was it right? Was it wrong? Was collective punishment ever right? So of course we say it's not ever right unless they were guilty of some sin. If the whole entire class collaborated at stealing the test and they copied it and used it, they're guilty. So Ramban over here would say, the say that the whole entire city was guilty as the Rambam says they're all guilty. The interesting commentary would be he who would say they weren't guilty and Shimon Levi were wrong for doing this. Who says that? Yaakov. Yaakov in his Berachot, this is where we end the class today, his Berachot curses their anger, curses them for what they did. I can't deal with these people. They're so angry. They kill. On moral grounds, Yaakov seems to condemn at the end of his life. But... Others, other commentaries don't easily make that conclusion because then you have to vilify Shemur and Vilevi. Most commentaries don't want to vilify them. Now, I'm not saying that the Rambam and Namban chose their answer because they didn't want to vilify Shemur and Vilevi. The Namban, specifically not so because he in fact vilifies other great biblical personalities. But Abraham, wrong for going to Egypt, leaving Eretz Israel As a great Zionist, he can't leave Eretz Israel. Abraham left, he was punished with Paro's Sarah story. Wrong. For, yes, he's wrong for doing so. Ramban says. Ramban says, uh, wrong for throwing Hagash Ma'el out in the middle of the desert with only a little bit of water and bread. Wrong. Ramban says that me. Ramban says it. He says Hatabaze. We could show it to. I've had to show many people. Sorry. Came into the world right. So you have Ramban is not attempting to whitewash the forefathers, as some commentaries do, simply says that in that particular case, one of the V acted appropriately. But not all commentaries would say that. Okay, interesting point. Ramban over here says, Surah Gadolhu, to start the Torah with Bereshit Baradohim. Surah Shaymunah, to know about God. If you know what I mean by this, if you don't believe in this, if you think the world is eternal, go fed by God. You're a heretic. You are great Jewish people who believe in the world is eternal, but not worry about that right now. Ramban says that you must believe in this principle. Therefore, it has to be here. Right, you had a question before I'm sorry. I think 
One of the commentaries did say that the reason why they punished the city was because the moral standards were so low, and that's why he was able to take them down. This makes a point similar to that. No. I don't believe, no. I don't remember that she's saying that. Now, but they were evil people. Because of that, they were guilty. As a, they were guilty. That's right. What it right. Collective punishment. Right. So they Now, he says, so the real issue over here is Hatshuva. The answer to Rashi's question is, you know why you don't know, start with Bereshit? Bereshit Sod Amok. It's a deep secret. In normal Vaminimukrot, what you have over here, you're not going to understand the truth of this teaching anyway. This is not what really happened. The deepest understanding of Ma'aseh Bereshit is a deep secret which is not understandable from the scripture itself. And you can never understand it completely only from Kabbalah. Now here I believe that Ramban is using the word Kabbalah although I could be wrong in a dual sense. What's the dual sense? Kabbalah meaning well, Kabbalah meaning Kabbalistically or orally. <coughs> it can mean either, I believe. I'm not sure that I'm ban from Halakha Moshe Misinai. Why would they know it? Because Hashem told Moshe. Okay. Prophetically. Okay. You cannot understand it from the Mikraot. So, this is what he might mean by this word, meaning Kabbalah. Maybe it's a du- double entendre, maybe it's not. The, the question is just simple to verify. Does the Ramban, when he wants to. Is what God is telling Moshe? No. What? Same thing as what and what? No, not not necessi- from our from his point of view. Oh, from his point of view, yeah, probably yes, probably yes. But not from our point of view. Because we don't necessarily say that the way the Kabbalah, Kabbalah views Masabit is the, necessarily the true explanation of it. Okay, that is the most common. Yeah, it's a commentary on Masabit. She doesn't mean it's necessarily the true one. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. So, is it Ramban uses double entendre or not? It means orally. So. Does he use the word Kabbalah to refer to Kabbalah's kitchen? Is the way to verify this question? What does he mean by the word Kabbalah? So that we can see. The only way to understand. Okay, so those who know it, Hayavim Nasiroto. Those who know this secret have the obligation of hiding it. Therefore, Rabbi Yitzhak said, she should not have told us this whole story which you're not telling us anyway. What you have over here is not telling us a thing. In fact, it was doing the opposite. It's misleading us. So why, that she is saying, in the eyes of Ramban, why tell us a story that you cannot really tell us? Don't need to do so. Why tell us what happened on the first day, second day, all the other days? And the creation of Adam and Chava, and the sin, and the punishment, and Gan Eden, and expulsion of Gan Eden. All of what happened in those first 10 chapters, 11 chapters, you won't understand it fully. From the text. And certainly the door of the flood. You don't get it. You don't understand what it's talking about. And the the separation of people to the Mugab Avel. You don't need them, great. It's enough for those of us of Torah without these writings, which don't really tell us anything anyway, and you believe in what is only mentioned in the Ten Commandments. That bit of sheet where it says, but that's all you really need. Because what you get over here, Ramban is trying to justify Rashi's question. What you get over here is not the real story anyway. So why tell it to me? Right? And the true 
interpretation and knowledge of this, we only start the Surah with Yud Bet Shemot. And the only question about this whole stuff is from Ten Commandments. Right? So you still get to know about it, the average person. So in the true knowledge should remain the solitary individuals. Those who know it from traditionally, orally. That's all. That's an Amban's view. So the Amban's view, in a sense, is exactly what Ashi's view is. You don't need this information. And the Ramban is then talking about a whole entire story about the, about the sins, the transgressions, what we learned, we don't learn from it. He concludes his point over here. Well, Ramban says you need to start with it, whatever you're going to be told isn't what it is. Right, so therefore you don't, have, you don't really need it though. At the end he says, the question he says, I'm going to attack Rashi. You need it because you need it for Emunah. Right. But Rashi's telling us, you're really not going to understand it anyway. So why have it? And the Ramban seems to agree with that. But if 50 years or 100 years of science is right there, you're going to feel the same way? Science is right there where? Where, let's say more discoveries come through as to how the world is created. Right now, you mean? Right. And even more obvious, imagine the species, they would feel the same way. They couldn't conceive it. They probably couldn't conceive it. Because time frames more than how it's not important. It's not important to the people at that time, not that important. He would say that whatever science is going to teach you, it's going to come back, and we've learned this, to singularity. To that point which nobody can ever know about. How could all of matter be infinitely packed into one dense little point, this sheet point, that explodes with such incredible force? We can't consider it anyway. Oh, as Stephen Hawking says in his video, he says, I could tell you what happened the first trillionth of a second of the Big Bang. Prior to that, quote, only God knows, unquote. So you can't get to it anyway. But even as advanced as scientists today, there what are we know? people that just can't approach it or can't comprehend it or just... What's interesting is that with all that we have today, this article is one I was going to use a little bit. Was there a Big Bang? Meaning that everybody assumes it was a Big Bang. He points out ten different reasons or five different reasons. There was no Big Bang. This is it's commentary David Berlinski. Eternal Universe. He says, why are you assuming Big Bang is true? We're not assuming. We went hundreds of years assuming that it wasn't true until 50 years And his point, said, yeah, there is. it's not proven. It's a theory. And he says it's accepted as the holy grail of science. Yes. Saying, hold on a second. I'm telling you to wait a second. When in 1917, Einstein published his first estimates of the size of the universe, telescopes could not penetrate the heavens beyond the Milky Way. Like a sail endeavoring to measure the depth of the sea from the shore, astronomers lacked the means to probe the heavens further or to probe them in detail. That's then. And it goes, this is now changed. Information pours from the night skies. Terrestrial telescopes hissing and cooking as they rotate to survey distant galaxies. Somewhere in space, the realigned Hubble telescope appears to the unpolluted depths. Physicists have pictures of the backside of beyond, and they appear to have overheard the cosmic cackle that accompanied the very crack of time, as nothingness gave way to light. Cosmologists have come into their own, handling the universe with an, with, an, with an easy familiarity, writing book after book in which they, they explain in exuberant detail how the great things were done. He says, wrong. And he quotes mathematicians and other people who have all kinds of issues with the Big Bang. It's a good corrective. It's the way that thinking works. Exactly. Much as people right. go by it, they still recognize it. Of course, absolutely. And that's my criticism of him. So we'll say there. Silly. I, said he's, I think he's being silly. You're attacking, what is it over here? Straw dummy. What is a straw dummy? You know what a straw dummy is, by the way? A straw dummy is when a person wants to argue something and he sets it up as a, something that we don't really, nobody believes this, 
and you're knocked it down. Who'd you knock down? You set up a false claim. Say, oh, I see it's false. Nobody believed it to begin with. Straw dummy. Or red herring, may some people call it. It's like a false beginning. So we, I agree with you. So I said, what are you screaming about? We know that we're not on soft footing over here. But he could probably answer me and say something else. He could probably answer me and say, look, I know that you know you're not on solid footing. But we still think it is anyway, right. We're all operating with great security. We really feel we are. So, this is an interesting issue. I mean, I, I wasn't that happy with this. We're going to look, look, at, look at it a little bit later. It talks about inflation. And he laughs this notion of inflation. What science is not doing is that every little problem with their theory, they create another theory to solve that problem. Because it didn't work out that the, nation, the universe could expand uniformly. You know what's great we have today? It says, we came up with this Alan Guth came up in 20 years ago at MIT. With inflation. Like a so it started off that way. Then it's proceeded uniformly. So, okay, good. Anytime you have a problem, just create another theory to fit in the details. Or cold chasing the truth. Did he give you an alternative? When you no, find you out you were wrong, you create a new theory that, that matches what you're Okay, I agree with you. No, I agree with you. Or he's backing up what Ramban is saying that, okay, you may end up getting closer or closer, but you never may really figure it all out. He doesn't say that. He just, he's just kind of just negating and saying, look, look, at the, look at the other possibility, which is a static universe. But there are other nuances that, that are always uh, arising. Arising out of... The Big Bang. Out of the Big Bang. It's always... Yeah. Okay, not there yet. The death of the universe, the death of the... the All that we agree. Anything. Okay, so he's only wants to, he wants this to be a corrective. Not a bad idea. Yeah, agrees. I mean, uh, yeah, as that... It's good. I mean, and how he ends it, it's very nice. I mean, I'm not against him. So, I mean, I, I, I certainly I'm agree with what you said. So, but over here, Ramban ends his point like this, saying, at the end of the day, the whole world universe is God's. And he gave us all, to, so this we have this whole pasuk gave to us, gave to them, etc. Then he says, Then what really I believe, as I already mentioned, with Ta'alumot, with the secrets of Ma'aseh Bereshit, the secrets of what we're talking about right now, Amr Botenu, a rabbi said, Koach Ma'aseh Begid La'amor, Le'agid, this is the way the rabbis of 2,000 years ago understood this. Right? Le'agid Koach Ma'aseh Bereshit, the Basar Adam, is a great start line, to tell over the power of creation in Genesis to physical flesh, what? I'll read it again. The Pasuk. To say, tell them. What's Ram going to say? What am I going to say? It's impossible. Ramban's position over here is. You can't understand it at all. So he's already said. Yevshar. Letichach, therefore, stamachach, katuv. Therefore, Torah just said to you, simply. God created in the beginning, end story. That's all. That's the best way. When you can't explain it, just say, simply. That's all. So the Ramban and Ashi really are telling us, contrary to his statement over here, that we don't really need Maaseh Bereshit. Rashi says we don't need it and Amban with Banwan says and maybe from two different points of view she says you don't need it because you do mitzvot and Amban says you don't need it you know why because you can't understand it anyway so what's the point of it he's not saying you need the question he's saying that the question is asked Amban no Matt he's saying that the question is asked 
Whether or not you need to ask it is a different question. No, he's saying, but, well, no, this is more than that. But how did the world come into be is vital to both disciplines. Religion needs it because it is such a fundamental human question, one that has been pondered since human consciousness evolved to the point where it can reflect itself in the cosmos. We need it, he's saying. Now, let's go this a little bit further. Of course, again, Rashi and Namban do not try to solve this whole Ishmael's But we could say, perhaps, that on a psychological level, we need to know our origins. On a personal level and on a cosmic level. Personally, we want to know how did we come to be. Is it, is it not almost a psychological need to know that we came from parents? Have you ever heard, and this is maybe a bit speculative, but you ever, have you ever heard <coughs> that at times a person who was adopted, the case may be, a person who was adopted wants to know who is or who her biological parents are. They want to know where they are. Otherwise, they're sort of like floating. Where did I come from? I've often told my parents that if even if I were adopted, I wouldn't care. It's all right. No problem. Nah, it's okay. It's okay. I don't mind if I'm adopted. It's okay. We get a big inheritance, maybe something. I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't think it would really bother me. But since I know that I'm not, I feel okay about it. But it's an interesting question. I've often and I had to deal with this a number of times where adopted people had a right to the records, right, letters, letters, and all that to try to get the records opened up because the people want to know who are they. If they're adopted. They still don't know who they are. Who are their parents? There's almost a need for a human being to know what your origin is. And on a cosmic level, we don't have a need because many people don't have the need, but it's almost to say that certain people at certain stages of development do in fact have a need to know where this universe is all about. To speculate. To think about. What does all this mean in the overall cosmic sense? Yes. There are those that would just simply accept it as is. Same with Rashi says that you don't need to know this because people accept it. When you're five years old, you accept it. When you're 15 years old, you accept it. Yeah, there are a few kids who have this speculative kind of a nature and raise the question, why is the sky blue? And raise all those kinds of questions, where did I come from? For a week. week. Exactly. Now, there are those who meet teachers at certain points who sprinkle some growth powder on that thought and it does remain an ongoing question for them. Death. When I was in high school, I wanted to know about death and life in the world to come. I went to my teacher. I said, well, how do I, I want to know about death. What happens when you die? What, what, what does it all mean? And it was Hamnafu, I think it was. said, we'll read the Haram So I read that essay on resurrection of the dead. Okay, and I was happy for that point of time. But we all, or many, but not everybody, want to know what's beyond that life. We find it's a great need to know what's beyond life. We want to know. We're afraid of it, perhaps, or those people, some people are willing to face it very courageously because they want to know so much. What's beyond? What's before? So, the big question that life asks of us, not all people perceive. Not all people see it. That's true. But there are those people who at certain stages of life and maybe many of us, maybe it's all of us, but we just shove it aside. Why shove it aside? We're afraid. We're not capable. We don't care enough. We'd rather play basketball, watch uh, honeymooners or something. It's, or it's unanswerable. Or it's unanswerable. We accept that, right? Correct. I would say you should be engaged in that because the the journey to right. That's what we were saying in the beginning. The journey itself has merit. I find it to be that way. 
It's an, it's, a, it's an engaging way of spending time. I don't have to read, you know... Uh, so people don't care about the anatomy of the body. People want to get into the... Right. You know. Exactly. It's an interesting point. I don't care that much about anatomy of the body. It's nice. It's interesting. I would, okay. But I don't, yeah, okay. I don't, want to, I don't want to dissect the shark to find out what its cartilage is made of. I don't care. So that's right. It's certain speculative questions appeal to certain people. So this... Certainly there have been people in both disciplines that have asked this question have had a need to know. In religion, they've spent enormous amounts of time, especially the Kubalim, have spent all that time trying to figure out exactly how did the finite world come to be given an infinite God. And they had to create all kinds of speculative premises and statements about consume and self-contraction and everything else like that. Now, without their theory, I don't know how to... Under, I wouldn't be able to solve the problem either. In other words, if God is allness, then how did the world come into a bath? Without Tzimtzum. Self-contraction to oneself, leaving a vacuum. But I would say that I can't solve that problem because your premise is... What's your premise? That God is allness. Allness is a physical term. God is not a physical being to cover everything. So how do you answer someone who says that it's just all illusion? What's illusion? Everything. The world? Yeah. How do you answer that? Didn't someone once say that, that, that God thinks... Of course. We are God's thinking... So God's dreams. Right. Yeah. I would say that once you enclose yourself in the box of saying that all is an illusion other than me, which of course what Descartes was one of the great Enlightenment philosophers said, he came to his conclusion, I think therefore I am. I'm not even an illusion because I know that I'm... Th- I'm somebody was doing the thinking that I'm thinking right now. So much I'm around. And he then proceeds slowly to say and figure out that there's a world out there and there's a God out there and it all makes sense in one whole big picture. But ultimately, he was wrong because a person could be just simply dreaming that he's thinking. And he's not really. But then, but then, wait, wait, right. But then who's doing the dreaming? Him. So it's got to be. Well, like you say, it's God's dream. Or one of the critiques of Descartes when we were studying this in, high, in college with Dr. Roth 30 years ago, long time ago. 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Something. Uh, exactly 30 years ago. 20 years. Exactly 30 years ago. Was that maybe it's God, not God because God would not deceive you. God cannot deceive. Maybe it's the devil who's deceiving you into thinking that you're really alive thinking so but really it's not. So the devil's not is, is just deceiving himself almost into creating a nightmare called you. And if we don't really exist. So the answer that I would say to that is that rationally we can't get out of that box that we just created. But God wouldn't, right. But it could be a demon is what Dr. Roth has said about it. But right, but forget about Descartes. I think you really can't get out of that box intellectually. But you could say intuitively. Intuitively, do you have a sense of life? Intuitively, do you feel that this is or is not? In the same way that if one were to assert that the individual has no free will as B.F. Skinner said in the 60s in Beyond Human Dignity very famous uh, Walden too famous Harvard psychologist said there's no such as free will that everything that you do is pre-programmed and I know what you're going to do if you give me all of your past history tell me you want to teach you the Hillel you want to see the I will know tomorrow you're going to put on tefillin so he knows it because if he knows every factor who your parents are who your grandparents were where you grew up what shoe who's your rabbi every factor it's a school of thought in psychology school of thought 
we would say that no, there's always that little free will that tells you that you do A or B, that I'm not putting on your feeling tomorrow. But he would say, but I know there's a little rebellious streak in you that when you stole the cookie from the cupboard when your mother wasn't looking, that you're still going to try and assert, not your, it depends, but not putting on feeling tomorrow, say, I knew that too. So that's a major machmoke. So how did he get out of it? Norman Lamb got out of it when we studied with him this particular issue. He says, look, bottom line, intuitively you feel free. You do feel free. I do feel that I'm going to have to... I told you I'm not having tea. Right? You didn't know that. You thought I might have tea. I always have tea. That's what I Right. So intuitively you feel it. And therefore, now, if it's only an intuition, which is a deep human-seated feeling, as love is, do you choose to live life as a free-willing person or as a automaton? Which means you do nothing because you, you, don't, you don't want to... Because what do I do? So something tells me to do something, I can't do anything. So, if you choose to live life as an automaton, you get nothing, you do nothing. And many people before you said, I chose life the other way, though I can't prove it, to live life freely, and I created, and I have a wonderful family, and I have children, and I have grandchildren, and I have wealth, and I have habits, and I have joy. The guy who said I'm not doing anything because I don't have any free will is doing what? He's sitting there still. Hands folded, what am I going to do now? I have no free will, I can't do anything. That's called depression in, in psychiatric terms. Person who has no, it doesn't feel control. I'm nobody. Uh, a clinically depressed person says, "I am nobody. I have no will. I can't do anything." They sit and they stare at a wall for four hours at a time. I, I know. Why are they that way? Because there's just nothing to do. I'm not. I'm not. There's no me. We try to figure out the psychologically why is there no me in that? Why is there no I? What happened to that person's I? So it's a difficult question. That in and of itself, but. In the same way that one could simply intuitively assert free will, so too one can intuitively assert that the world is and we're functioning in it. And if you want to set my intuition, and I would say to you, well, your choice is the following. It'll live life as pretending that you do have free will and pretending that there is a world out there, or don't. If you don't, you're going to be a pretty miserable person because what are you going to do? There's no world outside. There's nothing, there's no water over it. So where do you end up? So it's a roll of the dice. What do you choose to do? I think it would bother anyone. I don't know if I'm going to think tomorrow. Well, you want to feel that you're choosing it. I mean, if you tell me that I don't have free will, then what's the point? That I'm, it's not me deciding anything. On one hand, on the other hand, if I don't know it, so even if you don't know, if I tell you have no free will, so you, it would take a little bit of umph away from your decision-making ability. Because what's the difference? <laughs> Whatever you think, don't even think about it. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen anyway. Right, it doesn't matter. So, let's go back to a few more minutes. So now, Maaseh Benishi does give us a good job, does a good job of giving us a sense of our beginnings, though it cannot really do so. We could argue that Maaseh Benishi is good for children because even children at a certain level want to know where, how they got here, where they came from, what's this world all about. So, one could say that, yes, it's true that we can live life easily without Maaseh Bereshit, but it's much more difficult. Almost that a human being needs, we would argue, we could agree with him, a sense of wholeness. Wholeness means, where did I come from? Where am I going? And that gives us a little bit of a good sense of how to take steps in life. Because you know where you came from and where you're going. That gives meaning to life. Our few verses over here gives us a good sense of that. Let's explain the whole entire story. That's true. 
but at least it gives us a little bit of a push in the right direction. I know I came from a Bereshit, at least. So that's what he's saying over here. Let's go on. The book opens in the Catholic Christian Quartz of the Big Bang, and the majority of the Quartz of the Big Bang as the most reasonable explanation of the evolution of the universe. The best approximation to truth that we currently possess. That's contrary to his article. I mean, yes, he's right. I know what we're talking about, he's saying. What Charlie said before. Then he goes into the name Big Bang does not reflect the awesome nature of the origin of the universe. The Slinikas implies that matter and energy explode like a giant fire or an immense nuclear bomb in space. Why is that wrong? Why is it wrong to say that the Big Bang means, without reading it, ahead? It's always a creep in the audience, doesn't it? ahead. Okay. Right. Correct. Yet according to this theory, space itself is part of the expansion of the universe. It wasn't a big fire exploding into space. It created space. So you're going to ask me the question, what was there before? Answer, I don't know. What was there? What does that mean? What does that mean? Can, can you conceive of that? No. It's a vacuum. It's not a vacuum, it's something. Bounded by, by, by something. So long as it's bad, I can see what it's not. But there's nothing there. I can nothing be there. Even nothing is something. Right? Nothing. It was Hashem who contracted. Okay, that's the answer. Okay, let's go. Wait, let's go. Well, that's the Kabbalistic answer. That it creates the vacuum. Yes. Or the sheet. We read it last week in Zohar. I'm sorry? We'll come to that. We will get to that right now. So, space of its part of the expected universe and matter, and matter is carried along by the sun space. So, the bomb analogy breaks down. There were no sound waves to make bang audible. The expansion was smooth and continuous to this day. Then it goes to the Big Bang where it comes from. It was an accidental coinage. Fred Hoyle didn't like the idea. And he tried to mimic the idea. Laughed at the idea. They tried to have a new idea for the origin. They had a sky in 1993. Papa magazine. 13,000 entries. Big Bang was left. How does this contemporary creation story affect the challenge against of God? That's an important question. Can it help us discover a spiritual dimension in our lives and over- recover a sense of wonder? God and the Big Bang wrestle with these questions. Conceiving and formulating the answer, I have drawn on the insights of traditional Jewish learning, especially the mystical traditions of Kabbalah and Hasidim, as well as contemporary physics and cosmology. I suggest several interesting parallels, but my purpose is not to prove that 13th century Kabbalists knew, next page, 13, what the concept is now discovering, rather than exposition, these two distinct approaches, the scientific and the spiritual, I experiment with seeing, I experiment with seeing each in the light of the other. I am not trying to synthesize the two, synthesize the two, because the unique perspective should not be collapsed. This book seeks rather to bring through the dialogue. Nice point. Okay, now, um, we now want, we're going to stop over here for now. And he's going to talk about wonder in the next paragraph. Wonder is a very important part of approaching the universe. Something that we may have lost. It said that science demystifies nature, but scientists on the frontier are awed by the elegance and harmony of nature. As science reveals the of the universe and the cyphers of the cosmos, the, it evokes wonder. And I'm going to read how a religious Hasidic philosopher, Abraham Heschel, talks about wonder in exactly the same way that he talks about wonder at the universe. The key to finding God, the key to understanding the universe, may all be rooted in that word called wonder. A scientist at the beginning has lost his sense of wonder. Everything is dissectable. Everything is analyzable. 
but when he steps, takes a step back and approaches all of this from the perspective of the global view, he says, wow, look what I'm talking about. Whether it's in terms of the human body, in terms of the microcosmic gluons, the space between the subatomic quarks, that, or on the macro scale of the universe, we look at the whole, you say, wow, how does this really work? Look at the myriad forms of nature, biologically. The, do you ever have the thought that 98% or 99% of all that existed is extinct right now? An amazing thought. 99% of all that existed is extinct. It's astounding. Right, right, okay, yeah. And that, and that the human race, which is only five, six, seven thousand years old, is nothing compared to the most dominant creatures that ever known, the dinosaurs, who lasted six, seven, eight, hundred million years. Oh, we're nowhere compared to that. So we shouldn't be so arrogant about all this. But when you look at the broader scope of all that is, it's wonder that evokes that sense and approach to Hashem, to approach to God. In this book over here, I'll just read one or two paragraphs. It talks about the wonder that is necessary to be part of religion. As well, it's interesting that science now is discovering more and more of the wondrous aspects of nature and all of that is what gives us that perhaps commonality between the Kabbalistic teachings and the scientific teachings. Next week. Thank you. Oh, no, not next week. Next week we have